Meet our friend Placidus. He is a 10-year-old boy who was born with one leg that bowed outwards. His leg made it painful to walk and almost impossible to run. On top of it all, the other kids at his school would make fun of him for the way he looked. Thankfully, he found the Cure Children's Hospital of Zambia where he received surgery to straighten his leg. After time to heal and physical therapy, Placidus is not only standing on two straight legs, but also running with confidence and joy. Uh, by now that we are in the middle of a summer generosity project to support uh, the Cure Hospital in Zambia in Africa. Uh, I have to tell you that, uh, you may not remember, but in 2019 I had a chance to visit some of our ministry partners in Africa, and one of them was the Cure Hospital in Uganda, which focused on a different childhood issue, hydrocephalus, which enlarges the, the, the skull uh, of children who have it. And I, these are amazing places with extremely dedicated Christian nurses and, and doctors, many of them African uh, in origin, um, and are providing state-of-the-art care for people who have no chance to receive that kind of care otherwise. And so we are set a goal uh, between now and the end of July to raise $150,000 for the Cure Hospital in Zambia. So far, we're almost to $70,000 as a church family. So thank you for those of you who have already uh, been so generous. And we believe generosity is, is a high, one of our highest uh, values we hold as a church family. And if you want to jump into this project and help uh, that hospital, then just uh, you can use the church app, uh, under Serve the World, or the website, or just write a check and write on the memo portion, Serve the World and drop it in the box in the back. And everything given to serve the world this month will go to the Zambia Project. So thank you again so much for your generosity. And back just for a moment to the, to the singing and setting off the alarm on, on Kenton's uh, watch. I've said for a long time that we, are, we here are by far, uh, and it's not really not even close, the best singing campus of the Chapman Staple campuses. So I think so. I'm, uh, <laughs> now you can applaud for yourself. That's good. Uh, I'm leaving right for the service to go down and preach at Mill Creek, and I'm going to remind them when I'm there. <laughs> Not even close. So. so I want to start today with a little quiz. Um, it's a quiz about famous TV families. So I'm going to put on the screen the picture of a TV family from back across the decades, and I want you to tell me the name of the show. Okay? That's how it works. Ready? Uh, we'll start in the 1950s. 1950s. Leave it to Beaver, okay. A bonus question, what was the family's last name? Cleaver. The Cleavers, so Beaver Cleaver. And the older brother's name? Wally. Wally. Wally, there you go. All right, how about the little kid that was always getting Beaver in trouble? Eddie Haskell, all right, there you go. Very good, okay. Uh, next, how about this one? Fathers Knows Best. And what was the name of the actor who played the father? Robert Young, very good, okay. From the 1960s. How many remember this one? My Three Sons. I can still remember the introductory music to that show with the, with the wingtip shoes tapping like that. Remember, Fred McMurray is a single father. Uh, sons, uh, there were three sons. Do you remember anybody have their names? Chip, Chip was one, right? Chip. Robbie. Ernie was the friend or the cousin or something. Uh, Mike, Robbie, and Chip were the, were the three boys. Another favorite from the 60s. The Flintstones. You know the Flintstones were the longest, most successful animated sitcom for over three decades. Amazing. And the first one to hit primetime. Anyway, a bonus question. Uh, what was Fred and Wilma's daughter's name? 
Pebbles, there you go. And one more from the 1970s. There you go, the Brady Bunch, blended family with six children. Here's the bonus question. What was the housekeeper's name? Alice. You guys watch way too much TV. <laughs> now, all these shows, and I left out dozens. When I was looking at the shows I could have picked, there were dozens and dozens of family, TV families, uh, but they give us a glimpse into the American family, uh, different versions of the family, uh, and the beauty and the humor and the conflict and sometimes pain that family life brings. Consider the American family today. According to the Pew Research Center, in 1960, 73% of all American children lived in a family with two married parents in their first marriage. Okay, 73%, two married parents in their first marriage. Today, only 46% of American children live in that kind of family. And today, a full 26% of children now live with a single parent. If you add to that our current cultural climate, where we see attitudes and emerging ideologies that challenge, question, the traditional idea or view of both marriage and family, uh, we have to ask ourselves, what does God want, what does God envision for the family. And we're in week four of our summer series uh, today called, um, from the book of Proverbs, called The Pursuit of Wisdom. And we've seen so far that Proverbs as a book is a collection of sort of pithy, short wisdom sayings that are not so much promises, but rather more like principles for life. And we define wisdom as the skill of living rightly before God. And today we're going to look at wisdom and the family. Now, we know that families come in all different shapes and sizes. Just all of us here today represent all kinds of different families. Traditional, single parent, blended, adoptive, multi-generational. So we all live in maybe a different family situation, but we're going to see that God's Word provides wisdom for all the central relationships of our lives. I want to begin with Proverbs 24, Verse 3, where we read, By wisdom a house is built, and through understanding it is established. Through knowledge its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. So God sees the family as a rare and beautiful treasure, but how is a family built? Well, the first thing I want to say today is that a wise family is built on the foundation of God's Word. The foundation of God's Word. Years ago, when our boys were uh, much, much younger, uh, one thing led to another, and my wife and I heard just a, uh, a sudden just weeping and gnashing of teeth. Something had happened between two of the boys. So we ran to uh, check out what was going on and found one of them crying loudly and, and just complaining that his brother had whacked him. That's what he said. He whacked me! And so I looked at the, the boy who allegedly perpetrated the whacking, and I said, did you whack your brother? And he, he nodded, so guilty as charged. And then he, he explained, he said, but he, he took my toy. And I said, is that what you're supposed to do? Shook his head. I said, what are you supposed to do? And he said, use my words. I said, that's right. Now what do you say to your brother? And he looked at the brother he had just whacked and said, I forgive you. <laughs> right idea, poor execution. Uh, but Lorena and I wanted our boys to understand not just how to behave rightly, but we wanted them to understand the nature of forgiveness. 
and to learn to practice forgiveness because forgiveness is the heart of the gospel and the gospel is the heart of God's word. We began our whole series a few weeks ago in Proverbs chapter 1 where we read, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the fear of the Lord includes the knowledge of and the instruction of God's word because, first of all, God's word is true. And I know you're all here because you believe basically that God's Word is true. But let me talk about that for a bit. I think we could all agree uh, that there is a truth crisis in our world today. It seems like everywhere you look, you either hear someone saying, well, speak your truth, good for you. Speak your truth. Or someone saying, that's fake news. Right? In his book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, a theologian named Carl Truman writes that there have been, in the history of the world, basically two kinds of human cultures. There are cultures that base morality on truth that comes from an external source, a transcendent, divine, or sacred source, whether pagan through the uh, mythologies of, of the gods and goddesses or uh, from the God of the Bible, the Hebreo-Christian God. So truth, is a truth comes from the outside and morality is based on that truth. Or the second kind of culture is a culture that uh, bases morality on truth that comes from an internal source that is from the individual. If we go, and this kind of uh, culture results in, of course, moral chaos, uh, moral confusion. Way back in the book of Judges, we read, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That ancient verse well describes the world we live in today. We live in a culture now that actually debates, actually debates the meaning of male and female. That's why in Romans chapter 1, Paul writes, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. So where do we look for truth? Psalm 119 says, all your words are true, all your righteous laws are eternal, meaning they don't change with time and generations and culture to culture. All your words are true. Again, Paul writes in 2 Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, including, I would add, the work of building a house, building a family. Secondly, uh, God's Word provides protection and guidance. God's Word is true. It also provides protection and guidance. Anybody know what this is? You know what that is? <laughs> Looks like some medieval device, doesn't it? It's a, that is a po' boy pizza oven. Uh, my boys gave it to me this past Christmas. It burns wood pellets. It heats up to 900 degrees in six minutes. And it cooks an entire pizza in 90 seconds. And it's terrifying. <laughs> we decided to try it out a couple of weeks ago. So I opened up the box, found the instruction sheet which I have right here, um, because I, I, it, it was scary looking, uh, and read about it. And on almost every page of this instruction sheet, there's a big warning on the bottom. And it says, warning, hot oven surfaces may cause burns. Fire hazard, keep children and pets at a safe distance. Now, we did cook the pizza, but it, it was, that thing stayed crazy hot for like a whole hour afterward. We're having people stay away from it, stay away from it. it, it it's going to hurt you. Well, the, the, the instructions came not because it 
to keep us from enjoying pizza, or, but rather to make sure we could do so safely. It protected us, kept me from burning myself, and kept our grandchildren safe, kept their house from catching on fire, right? It was to protect us. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Again, Proverbs 2, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He holds success in store for the upright. He is a shield to those whose walk is blameless. For he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. God's word, or God's wisdom, uh, is not intended to make our lives somehow more difficult or to prevent us from having any fun. God's wisdom is to protect and to guide. Thirdly, uh, God's Word tells us that Jesus ultimately is the wisdom of God. Back in our spring series from the book of Colossians, we read what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. He says, My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So how is Jesus God's wisdom for families? How is Jesus the wisdom of God for families? Well, in Jesus we see God's love. 1 John 3 says, This is how we know what love is. Not by watching a television show. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So in Jesus, we see God's grace and forgiveness. And every family needs grace and forgiveness. In Jesus, we see God's promise of hope and healing and the restoration of all things. And every family needs hope and healing. I believe revival is coming. This is just me. I believe revival is coming to our culture. Maybe not in my lifetime, but soon. Revival is coming, and I think when it comes, it won't be because people are looking for religion. I don't even think it, might, it will be because people are looking for God. I think people will, will be looking for wisdom. Help me make sense of life. It's just not working. What the culture is telling me is just not working. Can someone tell me what's true? And wisdom will lead to truth, and truth will lead them to Jesus. Wise families are built on the foundation of God's Word. Secondly, Proverbs points us to God's wisdom for marriage. God's wisdom for marriage. I saw this little story a few years ago. Fred and Ethel had been married for over 50 years. One day, Fred fell and broke his hip. When he came out of surgery, Ethel was right there by his bedside. Fred looked up at her with his eyes filled, and his eyes filled with tears. He said, Ethel, I've been thinking since I've been here in the hospital. Ethel said, yes, dear. Fred said, I've been thinking that you've always been there during the tough times. Ethel said, what do you mean? Fred said, well, way back when I got fired from my first job, you were there. Ethel said, yes, dear. Fred said, a few years later when my business failed, you were there then too. Ethel said, yes, dear. Fred said, now when I fell and broke my hip, you're right here by my side. I think I figured something out. Ethel, her eyes now brimming with tears, said, well, what's that, dear? And Fred said, I think you're bad luck. <laughs> My wife told me she wasn't coming to the service, so, yeah. And we laugh because, we laugh because it's not true. 
Uh, that kind of faithfulness and loyalty is not bad luck at all. Rather, it's a picture of the covenant love of God that's ours as a gift through marriage. Proverbs say, says at least three things about marriage, probably many more. And this is interesting coming from a man who had, over seven, who had 700 wives, by the way, Solomon. First, he says, treat your marriage as a gift. Proverbs 18 says, he who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. Proverbs 31 says, a wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. So gentlemen, if you're married today, God is saying that your wife is a gift from God worth far more than rubies. In the ancient world, rubies were the most precious gemstone of all, more valuable even than diamonds. And I think we could probably flip this around as well. So ladies, your husband is a gift from God. Maybe not a ruby. <laughs> Maybe at least like polished granite, cubic zirconia, something like that. And a word to those who are not married or no longer married. Uh, Proverbs is not saying, the Bible never says there's anything wrong or incomplete in your life if you're not married. It's simply saying that if you are married or aspire to be married, this is God's wisdom for you. So often today, I think we see marriage caricatured, if we watch TV and movies and so forth, caricatured as something to be endured, uh, something to be tolerated, and in many cases, something to be avoided altogether. No, the Bible teaches that marriage was God's idea in the first place, and that it's a gift to be treasured. Secondly, the second piece of wisdom is to resolve conflict quickly. Resolve conflict quickly. A couple of years ago, or a number of years ago now, a, um, a couple called, made an appointment to see me for some pastoral counsel for their marriage. And I still remember they, they, when they arrived and walked into my office, they were in the middle of a fight as they walked in. I mean, a real fight. Yelling at each other, name-calling, pointing fingers as they walked into my office. They didn't even look at me at all, didn't greet me. They were just yelling at each other. And they walked in. I just, I just watched for a couple minutes. I was just amazed. You walk, you walk into the pastor like this, and they were going at it, going at it. Finally, I, I finally said, time out. I had to yell, time out. Hold on. Stop it. And they stopped and looked at me. Finally realized I was there. And I said, can either one of you Tell me how this fight started. They were quiet. They looked at me. They stared at each other. And then they both broke out laughing. I was like, wait, wait, what? What's going on? Turns out this is just how they lived. Their marriage was one long, contentious argument. There was one long conflict. That's not a wise way to do marriage. Proverbs 27 says, a quarrelsome wife... I'm going to explain this later, ladies, so don't get too upset. <laughs> a quarrelsome wife is like the dripping of a leaky roof in a rainstorm. Restraining her is like restraining the wind or grasping oil with the hand. Just to make sure we understand, he says in Proverbs 21, better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome wife, quarrelsome and nagging wife. Now, you have to understand Proverbs is tilted in a certain manner because it's advice from a father given to a son. Um, remember that wisdom throughout the book is often personified as a woman. 
Uh, so he's not saying that, that every woman is quarrelsome or that quarrelsome is, quarrelsome is the main characteristic of women. He's just using this as a marriage example. Because you can flip it around as well. In Proverbs 26 we read, As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. So husbands are perfectly capable of being overbearing, selfish, <coughs> excuse me, angry, sullen, emotionally unavailable, and are perfectly able to make life miserable for their wives just as wives can nag their husbands. So it's a, it's a mutual thing. Proverbs is basically saying resolve conflict before it becomes destructive. How? Proverbs 15 says a hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. Wisdom is patient. And patience, it takes patience to resolve a conflict. Wisdom also listens. Proverbs 18, to answer before listening, to answer before listening. Has anybody ever done that? Ever? Especially in a conflict? That is folly and shame. And wisdom forgives. Proverbs 12, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Ruth Bell Graham once wrote, a happy marriage is the union of two good forgivers. A happy marriage is the union of two good forgivers. The third piece of wisdom for marriage is be faithful. Be faithful. Some of you know that uh, our second son, Jesse, got married two weeks ago in Franklin, Tennessee. All together now. Aww. Yeah. Okay, I had the honor of doing their wedding. Now, Jesse and Maddie are, were both blessed with a long legacy of faithfulness in marriage in their family trees. Lorraine and I have been married for 38 years. Maddie's parents have been married for 30 years. Jesse's grandparents on my side were married for 65 years, on Lorraine's side for 58 years. Maddie's grandparents on her father's side were married for 62 years. That's a grand total of 251 years of faithful marriage. I told them that in their ceremony. And then I said, so don't mess it up. <laughs> no, actually, I just explained what I always explain at weddings, that marriage is a covenant relationship. Covenant means holy promise. In Proverbs 5, uh, Solomon is writing about faithfulness in marriage. That's the context. And he says, drink water from your own cistern. Running water from your own well. This is a poetic image of marriage. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. What he's saying is that God's covenant love for his people is to be reflected in the faithfulness of covenant marriage. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day, and in our culture today, there are so many people who see God's vision for marriage as, as pictured in the Bible, one man, one woman for life, as being hopelessly out of touch with the modern world, as being old-fashioned. But if you stop someone on the street and just ask them, what are you looking for in the central relationship of your life? What are you looking for? They will say something like this, I'm convinced. I want someone who will love me, who will be faithful to me, and I want that forever. That's what they're going to say. And the Bible's been saying that for 4,000 years. That's God's vision for marriage. That's God's wisdom for marriage. The third thing we see in this text is God's wisdom for parents and children. 
Parents and children, how many of you can remember how you learned to ride a bike? Can you remember the very first time riding a two-wheeler bike, okay, and how that happened? Well, I have a memory of being about five years old or so. It's, it's kind of fuzzy. Uh, and my dad was going to teach me how to ride my first two-wheeler. He took me to the top of our driveway, which, which I remember sloping downward toward our house a bit. And he started me off put me on it and just started me off going downhill. And I, it was exhilarating. I, just, I was on the two-wheeler going down the hill and I, until I went headfirst into the only bush in our yard. <laughs> and when I taught my boys, I remember getting them the bike helmet because we, we didn't have helmets when we were young, but we have, they put them in a bike helmet, put them on the bike, took them in the backyard where there was a grassy sort of slope where if they wobbled and fell, they wouldn't scrape themselves up. And did that a few times and then taking them out on the sidewalk, setting them on and running along as they wobbled with my hand kind of on the back of the bike to make sure I was, could stabilize them. And, they, and then, then, then eventually they just take off and they know how to ride a bike. That's a picture, I think, of what Proverbs says to parents. Proverbs 22.6, a verse all of you know. Start, off, start children off on the way they should go. The ESV says, train up a child in the way he should go. And even when they are old, they will not turn from it. Now, there are some who interpret this verse as meaning train them up in the faith. Others see it as train them up according to their personality or to their natural bent or abilities. Either way, remember, this verse is not so much a promise as it is a principle. In other words, teach a child to ride a bike when they're young, and he or she will always be able to ride a bike. They may not always ride one, but they'll always know how. Proverbs say that wise parents love their children in two main ways. First, through instruction. Proverbs 1 says, Listen, my son, to your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. So as parents, we are to teach them how to ride a bike, teach them how to drive a car, teach them how to throw a ball. But most importantly, we are to teach them God's Word, to teach them about God their creator, their heavenly father, to teach them about, about sin, about right and wrong, to teach them about forgiveness, to teach them about Jesus. As parents, we are to model what it looks like to follow Jesus, to pray for them and with them daily, to model being part of a worshiping fellowship, a church, to model service and generosity so they can see what it looks like. So if you're a parent today, Teaching your children is not primarily the church's responsibility. That's a message we send over and over again here at Chapel Street. It's not primarily the church's responsibility. Church should partner, but it's our responsibility as parents to instruct our children. Now, just a word for those of us who are grandparents. I'm convinced that grandparents have a powerful opportunity to influence grandchildren in the faith. Many times, I think, when children maybe struggle to hear mom and dad, they always can hear grandma and grandpa. So if you're a grandparent or a great-grandparent today, never underestimate the influence you can have in praying for and modeling for and talking to your grandchildren. Secondly, parents are to love their children through discipline. Discipline. Proverbs 13 says, Those who spare the rod of discipline hate their children. Those who love their children care enough to discipline them. Now, this verse and others like it in Proverbs that talk about the rod are not a command to or a permission to beat our children. Um, I grew up in a family where my parents occasionally spanked. Um, my wife and I rarely did. 
found other ways to do that. But we, what we, I want you to see here is the rod of discipline spoken about in Proverbs is an image of authority and correction. But the rod wasn't just used to punish in that culture. The rod was also used by shepherds to guide and protect. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So our discipline of our children is to correct, but it's also to protect. And what Proverbs is teaching us is that the key to all discipline is love. In Proverbs 3 we read, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father, the son he delights in. So to younger parents, I think the Proverbs is saying, start early. Teach and discipline with intentionality and consistency and perseverance early. I see many young parents who sort of are their children's buddies when they're little and are thinking about disciplining them when they get to be 13 or 15. Uh, It doesn't work like that. Discipline early. Teach early. And then you let go as they get older and older. To all parents, you have more influence than you think. To grandparents, you have more influence than you think. Never underestimate the power of your prayer or your example. And then finally, Children are to honor their parents by receiving instruction with respect and obedience. It's interesting that the only story we have of Jesus' early life, of his childhood, is when he was 12 years old and he stayed back from the family to debate the elders in the temple. Remember that story, Luke chapter 2? And his parents are just beside themselves with worry because they think he's lost somewhere in the city of Jerusalem. They have to turn around, they go back, and they search everywhere for him. When they find him, he's in the temple, and they, they get him back with the family and take him home. And this is what we read in Luke chapter 2. Then he, Jesus, went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So we can see younger people. There's a connection, even in Jesus' life, between obedience to mom and dad and growing in wisdom and in stature with God. Uh, Years ago, I came across the story of a father and son. And the story began like many stories do. The father and son were close in the early years when the, young, when the boy, boy was just very young. They played ball together, rode bikes together, went fishing together, all the things that dads and, and their sons do. But as the adolescent years came, so did conflict, as often happens. And through the high school years, the boy began to challenge his father's ways, challenge his father's values, challenge his father's authority. And the father often responded with anger. And frustration and a rift began to develop in the relationship. Uh, when the boy went off to college, the rift grew even wider. The son seemed to reject everything that the father had wanted for him, including his faith. Finally, one night, um, the father's phone rang at home at like three o'clock in the morning. A voice he did not recognize and could barely understand said, Your son's in real bad shape, and then hung up. So he was terrified, of course. And so he got in his car and drove four hours to the campus, to the, t- to the town where the, uh, the son's campus was, 
and he went first to the ER of the local hospital to see if there had been an accident because he feared he was driving at night. Nothing. Then he went to the police station. Is there any reports of a young man uh, in trouble? No. And then he went to the fraternity house on campus where his son lived. And there he saw the aftermath of a huge college party. And he found his son passed out on a couch after a night of drinking. The whole thing was just a drunken prank. Father sat down next to his sleeping son, put his hand on his head and prayed out loud but softly. Thank you for my son. Thank you that he's okay. Forgive me for allowing this rift between us. Turn his heart toward you. And then he left. Over the next month or so, he began to notice a subtle change in his son's demeanor and attitude. He actually came home a couple times. His grades seemed to get better. He seemed a little bit happier. Uh, and when the boy finally came home for summer, the father decided to take a risk. He said, um, your mom and I have noticed, uh, you know, a kind of a change in you, a good change. Do you mind me asking what's going on, what happened? And the son said, Dad, I was awake that night that you came to school. I pretended to be asleep because I was ashamed, but I heard what you prayed. And I just figured that if you could love me like that after all I'd done to hurt you, then maybe I could pray the same thing. That's God's wisdom for families. And that's the gospel at work at home. Let's bow in prayer. Lord God, thank you today for your word. For better or worse, we all come from a family, or we live in a family, and we leave a legacy as a family. For families that reflect your steadfast love and grace, we give you thanks. For families that have experienced pain or brokenness, we ask for your healing and reconciliation. For marriages that reflect your covenant love, we give you thanks for your precious gift. For marriages that are struggling today, we ask for your wisdom, grace, and restoration. For parents and grandparents, we ask for your wisdom as they instruct and discipline in love. And where there are strained relationships, we ask you to turn hearts toward you and toward each other. Lord, we ask you to pour out your wisdom and your grace on all our families. And that the rooms of our homes, indeed, would be filled with rare and beautiful treasures. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Having prayed those words together, please hear our benediction. Go now in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in him may we know all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Amen.